Amen. <clears throat> we are the reason. Is that the lyrics? He suffered and died. Well done. Um, well, good morning. What happened to the chairs for the backsliding section back here? It's, we, we moved those out? Moving up. No. I appreciate that, um, that devotion, Charles. And, and uh, you know, if you, when you're faced with suffering, when you're faced with death, or if you ever feel like you're closer to it, that's when you start thinking about these things. And Christ has delivered us from the fear of death. Um, we, we know what God has in plan for those that place their trust in Him. And we don't know everything there is to know. There's always mysteries. But we know the important things. And what could be more important than knowing what becomes of us after we die? So Christ has delivered us from the fear of death. He has defeated the enemy, Satan. He has defeated death in and of itself. And we're going to talk a little bit about that this morning. I think um, this morning's message will certainly challenge us. Um, it'll challenge us if, for sure if we have not put our faith in Christ. It'll challenge us if we are not walking according to God's ways. If we are believers, if we're not observing all that He has commanded us to observe. But I think also it will cause us to ponder. Because there are things in Scripture that, because they haven't happened yet, you just have to kind of imagine them or picture them according to God's description. And so our passage will help us to ponder spiritual things as well. And we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to look at the first 10 verses. Paul, up to this point, as you well know, has been talking a lot about suffering. He shares his physical suffering. He shares his spiritual suffering with the Corinthians. And he is sharing his story. He's sharing his pilgrimage of what it has meant for him or what it looks like for him to live for Christ. And there have been tremendous joys, but there's also been tremendous amounts of suffering from every conceivable level. And you expect, because he goes into such detail about describing how bad things had gotten for him, you would expect him to say, and you know what, I'll just have to be honest with you, I lost heart. And he doesn't say that. He says, I, I found heart. I did not lose heart, which in essence means I, I found heart. I kept the heart that Christ gave me. I, I found my identity or I, I tighten my grip on who I am in Christ and what God is all about and what life really means. And you look at that and you think, how can he says I can he say I didn't lose heart after all of that, that the world and circumstances threw on him. And we find that Paul's perspective, it comes in to his life in a huge way, and that is his perspective on life is that I'm here to glorify God. I'm God's servant. And sometimes in order to glorify God, I have to suffer and it hurts. Paul never makes light of suffering. He never says, oh, it doesn't matter, you know, just buck up. And it's just, you know, you're just imagining things. He never makes light of it. It's real. It hurts, whether it's spiritual, psychological, physical. It hurts. He understands that. But, but his philosophy is... 
um, really scriptural philosophy is you're going to make sacrifices for the things that you love the most. If you think about your, your children or your loved ones, uh, many of us would not hesitate to put ourselves in harm's way if it meant protecting that which we love the most. And Paul looks at his life with that perspective. I love God the most. I am here to glorify Him, serve Him. And if that means walking the path that He has set for me includes suffering, you know, I don't love it, but I love God. And so I gladly make that sacrifice. So from that perspective, it keeps him from sinking and losing heart. But there was another perspective that he keeps, just by way of reminder. And that is that he looks at what has happened to him in this life, and he calls the suffering and experience light and momentary. And the way he doesn't sink is by looking at things in the way the world works in the big picture. And that is, if you look at what's happening right now, or what is hap- Paul says, if I look at what's happening to me right now, and I think about uh, the things I've experienced, or maybe I'm yet to experience, yes, they're, they're terrible and they're painful. But when you, and in and of itself, if there was nothing else, then I probably would sink. But when you compare it to the whole picture that God has painted for us, then you realize this is just a momentary thing. It's a perspective that we have to keep as believers. That whatever we're going through is not the final page of the story. It's just one small part. And so when you look at what life throws of at us in the biblical perspective, no matter how harrowing it is, no matter how devastating, when you look at it, And you realize, you know what, this is not my life. This doesn't define me. This is just a part of my life. And it's really a very, very small part of my Christian life because the rest of it looks like this. And so when we keep that in perspective, this this is just very practical, uh, a practical way to look at life and apply God's truth into it. And so Paul's been sharing about that. And then he, he, he brings us into our passage this morning, and he's going to talk more about death. But in this case, he goes a little farther and, and teaches about, well, what happens when we do actually die? What happens to our bodies? You see, what, what we think about this world and the things to come and what happens to us when we die, it matters a great deal. And I know that we live in a world that doesn't seem to care a lot about what happens after we die. Has their own set of beliefs. But according to the Bible, what happens to us today and what happens to us in the future is a huge deal. And by thinking about life in the big picture... It enables us to be encouraged and it enables us to do the very thing that we want to do. And that is, even in our weakness, glorify God, even on our backs, glorify God at our greatest moments, at our worst moments to glorify God. What happens in the future always affects what happens in the present. And so Paul's kind of 
opening our eyes, if you will, to things to look for in the future. You know, it kind of sounds backwards, uh, but we need to be focusing on the things to come. I would say even more so than the present. Because our lives, just like as we anticipate with the incarnation, we anticipate the birth of Christ. We're so excited about what's to come. Really, in this life, we should be way more excited and and obsessed with what is to come than the present. And that's the biblical picture. I appreciated Otto Koning Jr.'s message uh, last week. It challenged us, don't lose perspective. Christian perspective is very important. And, you know, has the pandemic... That's, you know, it's worldwide, it's all-consuming, has that caused us to compromise our perspective of what's life about, why are we here, who are we, what are we supposed to be doing, because we can be more consumed with things that are happening in the world than things that God is up to in His kingdom. And one of the things that Jesus makes very clear, it's kind of Christianity 101, is seek first the kingdom of God. It says it all. What should we be about as true believers is we should always be thinking about seeking God in his kingdom. We should be about the work of the kingdom. It's not to mean that that the world isn't busy and doing things and we live in it. We have to interact with it. But what should our main focus be on? What should we be making sacrifices for, for God and his kingdom? I want to talk about some, I think these are deep things. Some of this teaching, this passage, you've heard about it before. But it's a great reminder and it's deep and it's very spiritually rich. So let's look at our passage, 2 Corinthians 5, the first 10 verses. The Apostle Paul says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So... Whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Talk about a Christian worldview. Wow! You mean there is really such a thing as good and evil? Yeah. Uh, You mean we really are accountable for our actions and our thoughts and everything we do? According to this passage, absolutely. You mean something really does happen to us after we die? There's a plan for the body we we live on? Absolutely. 
You, you have in here embodied truths from, from heaven that God has given us in his revelation. So it's of tremendous significance what happens when we live and even more significance when we die. It's so interesting when I read this and I think about, I always think about uh, different options, you know, well, because I don't want to get so comfortable with Christianity that I forget what it's like without that, those uh, set of truths. So what would, what would I, what are my options to believe? You know, what does the world have to offer me about being dead? Well, one of the things is evolution and or atheism or evolution basically says when you die, that's it. There's no more consciousness. There's no more feeling. There's no emotion. So everything that you know of as life is completely snuffed out and you don't know it's snuffed out because you never you don't exist anymore. You, you're not a thinking, feeling, sentient being anymore. When you die, that's it. So some of you, if you bought Christmas trees, you went out and cut your own Christmas trees and and they're going to they're going to dry up and you're going to have to get them out of the house. So they're not as a fire hazard and don't keep dropping needles. And so you drag your Christmas tree out into the woods and you just let it uh, be out there and it just decomposes and it's nothing. It's just no longer anything. It's gone. And so that is one way to look at what happens to our bodies and our minds, our souls and our spirits, if we even have those things. You are no more. You cease to exist. You feel nothing. You think nothing. You know nothing because you are nothing. And yet Scripture says God has put eternity in man's heart in Ecclesiastes. So I believe that even when, as hard as we may try to deny anything about eternity, that it's in our hearts. And so we're going to think about it, whether we know anything about God or not. It, it will stir us. At one point or another, we will entertain the idea of uh, what really does happen after I die. That's why it is so important for us, I think, as believers, to remind ourselves of the importance of turning to Christ and the importance of sharing the truth with others. So we've been convinced of our need, as we talked about in Sunday school this morning, justification by faith. We've been convinced of our need when we look at ourselves up to the standard of God's law that we are God's enemy in and of ourselves and need salvation to be saved from His Wrath is reality of a judgment. So first thing I want to look at, two things this morning. I want to look at our bodies or think about our bodies and what happens to them. And then we're also presented with the judgment seat of Christ. So we're going to have to think about, work through, what does it mean to be presented before God at the judgment seat of Christ? But first, thinking about our bodies, what happens? What happens after we die? Well, the first thing that Paul says is that when we die or when he dies, that he is present with the Lord. And that's what happens. When our bodies play out, we, our being, our essence is to be at home with the Lord. That's how he puts it. We are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and when you're away from the body, what are you? You're at home with the Lord. 
And then in Philippians 1, 22 through 23, he says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. So I'm, I'm here on this earth, I'm in my body, and I'm serving the Lord, I'm bearing fruit, yet which I shall, and that's, that was my words, by the way, not the scripture, but yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. So he's, he's thinking about Christian truths. You know, this is great because while I'm here, I can bear fruit for Christ and, and I can share the gospel and, and I can use my body to be the, the, you know, the hands and the feet of Christ. But when I'm there, I'm with him in a more intimate way. I'm at home. So his heart leans towards the unseen. His heart leans towards wanting to be with Christ at home. But he's just as pleased because he wants to please Christ. And he knows when his time comes that he'll be with him. So he's just as pleased to stay here. But he wrestles with these things. Have you ever thought about that? It's wonderful to be here to continue to serve Christ. But wouldn't it be nice to be with him? Because he, he talks about the scripture paints heaven with a pretty positive light, right? It's paradise. It's, it's better. It's better than the paradise that we know of in Genesis in the Garden of Eden. And Paul talks about the body, he talks about the tent, talks about it as a tent, which is what we have now. And then he talks about it as a building, which is what God turns it into or transforms it into. It's what God gives us. So the body that Christ has made for us is a building. What we are in right now is a tent. So... If you've ever wanted to be built, you will be built, well built in heaven. The tent that we have now, it's weak, it's, it's, it's mortal. Uh, we are very well aware of our shortcomings. Our bodies can't do what we want them to do. I got a kick out of Otto's comment that my mind is still young, but my body just can't keep up. You know, it's that tension there. Uh, you'll feel it if you have not yet experienced that i remember it's been so probably about three years ago uh it's funny how age just hit you but i was i had i was really focused on all these things i had to do outside at home and man in my head i was flying from one task to the next and i happened to look down at my feet and i thought i'm not even moving fast <laughs> what is going on here So there's a time, uh, there's a time for believers, for probably the vast majority of believers, where we will be disembodied. We will exist, we'll still be ourselves disembodied. We won't, our body will be here. And we will be, as Paul says, home at the Lord. As a matter of fact, he, he calls it naked, being naked. And we think of, well, if you're naked, you took all of your clothes off. And he looks at it even farther than that, takes it farther. And that is, well, actually, you took your whole body off. And there's nothing left but your spirit or your soul. And so there will be a time of temporary nakedness or um, disembodiedness. And he says, you know, I would really prefer not to experience this moment of being disembodied, a disembodied soul. What I really love to happen is that God comes back and just takes me up as I am 
and the transformation from the tent to the building takes place. That would be great because then I wouldn't have to experience any time where I am disembodied. But he's good with it. Verse 9, whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. So that's always his goal is to please God with the life and the death that God gives him. Walks by faith, not by sight. I want to point out something in this passage that I think is is important. And that is that uh, being bodiless is not ideal. Paul's a little, it's awkward. He, he points out the awkwardness of being a disembodied soul. And I'm, I bring that up because there are philosophies out there that teach actually our bodies are subservient to our souls. They're, they're more the evil part of ourselves. And it's better to do without our bodies. We want to reach a state where we're no longer dependent upon our bodies. Because they're material, they're evil, they're bad. And yet Paul's saying, no, I, it's awkward for me. I, I need my body to be what God created me to be. And so it's, it's not evil, it's not bad. There's a plan for God. He, may, he renews it. He restores it. And so it's not the, the Greek philosophy that talks about um, life needs to all be up in our heads or in our spirits. The physical or the material is evil. But when a, a believer dies, he goes to be with the Lord and he leaves his body behind. Even without... His body, Paul says, it's better to be with the Lord. So there's, even without our bodies, we experience a deeper level of intimacy and relationship. Uh, It's a deeper level of being blessed by God, even though we're in his presence without our bodies. But that's not ideal. Ideal would be when we're in the presence of God with our new bodies. The second thing that we've seen, uh, so when we die, we are with the Lord, but we will be eventually with the Lord in our resurrected bodies. God cares about our bodies. He has a plan for our bodies. They're not evil and we don't leave them behind when we die. They will be renewed and we bring them with us, if you will, or restored or recreated. They are built by God. He gives us a new shell, something new to live in. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 53. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on The imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. Again, in Philippians 3, 20, 21. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So there is a resurrection of the dead where God gives us New bodies, resurrected bodies, and those bodies will be like the resurrected body of Christ. You know, I think that um, in in my observation, 
for whatever reason, we're not as excited today in the church. We're not as excited today about our resurrected bodies as the early church was. Like we're, we're really excited about the concept of resurrection. But we don't know how to think about what does that actually look like in the resurrection. And yet the scripture is very excited and Paul's excited about the resurrection including his body. And I think what happens is today, for whatever reason, we, we, we can't picture heaven as having anything material in it. And so what we have is we, we picture ourselves as little cream puffs or something floating around on immaterial clouds. You know, the, the, that's the best we can do with our vision is we're just spirits and we're floating and we're like the angels. And we, there's like this disconnect with thinking about heaven in material terms. But Paul says we are, the, the material is there. We, our disembodied souls get a new body from Christ. And it's going to be like the resurrected body of Christ, which is a material body. It's still human. Christ reigns in the heavens. The Son of God reigns in the heavens as the Son of God, or the Son of Man. And that gets confusing. But he took on flesh, the incarnation. That's what we are celebrating in this season, the incarnation. God became man. He took on flesh. That flesh died, but it was glorified. So he lives in glorified flesh. We will live with glorified flesh. And so to picture heaven with material substance, it's, it's, it's hard to wrap our minds around. But the New Testament church longed for that kind of life. That was heaven for them. And when, when God talks about the new heavens and the earth, I mean, is that like all spiritual? Or is that a material substance? He makes it new. Uh, our passage talked about the body as being changed. It's transformed. It's renewed or it's changed. So it's a higher level of something. It's a modified, glorified level of our bodies and our, and our souls. So that's what I meant by... Our passage will challenge us, but it will also challenge us to ponder things because what does that look like if there are physical beings in heaven, which there will be? And heaven also includes material things, the heavens and the earth. So it's just like in this world, it's spiritual and material. We have it here, but it's fallen. There it will be risen. So we want to long for these things and think scripturally about these things. Our resurrected bodies will be glorified. Like Christ, they will have actual substance. Philippians 3, again 21, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. So what it why this is important is because this is God's plan. And the way that we can most glorify God is not with a disembodied spirit, but when our spirit and our new bodies come back together, that's how we will live eternally. And that's how we can most glorify God. So as scripture says, the seed has to die in order for the plant or the more beautiful, the imperishable to come forth.
but it comes forth as a spiritual seed. It's the same thing in different form. We're, we're sown perishable, but we're raised imperishable. So, how, so what does that do for our thinking when we think about heaven? Uh, we, we think about uh, people with arms and legs and hair and teeth, you know, in heaven. Not cream puffs or cloud formations. By his own design, God is manifested and glorified by the physical things he creates. So we will physically bow before him. We will physically offer him praise and glorify. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Glorify God in our bodies. That's the final state of glorification. Glorify God in our bodies forever and ever and ever. So what happens when we die? We go to be with the Lord and we are given a glorified body, a resurrected body, a changed body that Paul calls the building. Christ has built it for us. We also learn what else happens. Well, we have to think about the judgment seat of Christ. Because this is also, if you believe in Holy Scripture, this is what happens. We're given resurrected bodies if we're believers. And we also come before the judgment seat of Christ. We must all, he says in verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So quickly, I just see four truths that pop out of here. First, we will all appear. It's, it's conclusive. We will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, believer and unbeliever. And we often think about, well, only the believers, I mean, only the unbelievers will appear before the judgment seat of Christ and be judged. Paul says, no, we will all, believer and unbeliever, we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So if, if we, um, and, and as we appear before him, he will give us what we earned based on the decisions, the choices we made while we were here on earth in the body. So all will be present. Unbelievers will be judged. And... You know, sadly, if can, can you imagine being an unbeliever and wholeheartedly embracing, say, atheism or evolution and being convinced that when you die, that's it. And then you breathe your last and it's not it. Like scripture says, you will actually be more alive after you die. You will be more alive even in hell. You will be more alive, more alert, more sensitive to reality that sin deceived you in. You didn't know that that's what life is about. You didn't know how holy God was. You didn't know how evil sin was. You didn't know how rebellious you were in hell. You know these things. You are more alive and sensitive to these things, but yet condemned eternity to torment and punishment, and that's part of it. Can you imagine what that will be like? How sad that is for those that don't believe in Christ and think, I, 
You know, I got away with all the stuff I did wrong. I'm not accountable to anybody. I took it to the grave with me. Mm-mm. If, if you're a Christian, that's, that's not what you know happens. We are all accountable. We'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Hebrews 9.27, just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. That's the, the process, the protocol, if you will. Heaven or hell awaits us based on where we put our trust and who we live for. So we all stand before him. That's everybody. And secondly, everybody that stands before him will be judged. First you die and then you're judged. These are just simple truths here. And third, who is the judge? Christ. Now this can get a little confusing. Confusing, granted, because you have uh, the Godhead and it is um, three in one. It's one God, three persons. And these, the Trinity shares responsibility, shares responsibility in creating, in, in sovereignly ruling. Um, but yet it also we find that within the Godhead, the Father has specific roles, the Son has specific roles, and the Spirit has specific roles. And so... We do read, say, like in Romans 14, verses 10 through 12, that God is the judge. So we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. We also find that Jesus says in John 5, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment. Because he is the son of man. So they all are, they're all judge in different roles. But when it comes to this particular point in redemptive history, we will face the judgment seat of Christ. He will be the judge. He has taken on this specific role within the Godhead. So we'll all die, we'll all be judged, and we'll be judged specifically by Christ. And then fourth, We'll be judged for what we have done in the body, what we have done on this earth. And it falls in one of two categories. Either we've done good or evil or both. And that's what we will be judged accordingly to. The good that we've done and the evil that we have done. And by the way, the judgment standard is the holiness of God. We don't bring our own rule book to heaven. We don't bring our own laws. We don't bring our own righteousness, our own standards. We don't get to draft our own test and then take it. This is according to the holiness, the perfection of God. And we will be judged for what we have done. Matthew sixteen twenty seven. For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father. And then He will repay each person according to what he has done. Revelation twenty two twelve through 13, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I'm the Alpha and Omega, the first, the last, the beginning and the end. You see, God's Word gives us pause to think about our actions. To think about what we love, to think about where we're putting our energy, where we where we put our money, where 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 our desires are 
placed. And when we think about this, uh, we might realize that we've made some bad decisions or soft decisions. That we've lost perspective. And you think about, well, as a believer, I read this passage and say, well, thank God that he gave me the gift of faith and that I believe in him and that all my sins, past, present, and future are forgiven. <sighs> Sigh of relief. And that's true. So when we face the judgment seat of Christ, as believers, we've already been judged. And we've already been, as we talked about this morning, declared righteous. And you don't lose that declaration because you never gained it. It's a gift of God. And so we live eternally in the presence of God with our resurrected bodies, our, our buildings, pleasing to God. But is there something else that happens at the judgment seat of Christ? Well, we also know that unbelievers will be judged in the separation of the sheep and the goats. And unbelievers will be given what they deserved. He says, I'm coming. I'm just going to give you what you do. You earned it. I'm going to give you what you earned. And that is hell. If Christ has not taken the punishment, that is where you go. So is the purpose of the judgment seat of Christ to pronounce those who are lost and will be judged and punished eternally and also pronounce those who were found, those who were saved, who will live forever in the presence of God? Yes. But is it also for another kind of pronouncement? Is the judgment seat also for a pronouncement of what we have done in the body as believers? Does God look at our lives or say our work of sanctification, the choices that we have made, do they have any significance for believers? Man, crescendo right there. Time to end it. I think, I think it's both. I think it's both. I think we're already judged as far as matters of eternity. Man, that was... Oh, for what we do in the body. Oh, putting the pressure on him over there. So by grace we've been saved. But our works do not put God in our debt. But what are our works? They are manifestations of evidence of our salvation. So in Paul's teaching and even in Jesus' teaching, we start to see that even though we're saved, there are degrees of rewards. So we want to wrap our minds around that. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his wages according to his labor. Now, these are believers. Planting the gospel, sharing the gospel. This is in 1 Corinthians 3, 8 through 10. For we are God's fellow workers. There's sanctification. We're in it together. You are God's field, God's building, according to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder. I laid a foundation. Someone else is building upon it. But he, he acknowledges that we receive wages according to our labor for Christ. So there's degrees here. And then in Luke 19, 
we have that famous or well-known passage about the, the minas. And it's the picture of Jesus as the master who comes back and he compares his going and return to, to the master that comes to his servants to be accountable for what they have been given and their responsibility in overseeing things. What have they lost and what have they gained? And the first was given ten minus and he gained ten more. The second and, and, was, and was rewarded with ten cities. The second was given five, gained five more, was rewarded with five cities. So there's rewards here. And then in verse 20 of Luke 19, another came saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept. Your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. So he kept it. He did absolutely nothing with it. And in verse 22, the master says, I will condemn you with your own works, you wicked servant. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. So there is a degree, there is a reward there. The, you get the idea that this guy was a poser. He didn't do anything for God. He was a servant of God who did nothing for God. He gained nothing for God. And so he was, that was taken from him and he was gained. He didn't lose his salvation. He never had it. And one of the things about sanctification and justification is that we struggle with every Sunday. Is you have justification, it's declared. Sanctification is participatory. And then James messes it all up when he says, but faith without works is dead. They're, they're inextricable. Because if you are transformed by the living God, it is new things are growing in you and they will come out. Now, it may be a whole lot slower for some than others. But there will be changed. It's a new life in you. You can't stifle the life of Christ if you're a true believer. You can't get to the judgment and see and have nothing to show. What that shows is that you were not a true believer in Christ. James 2, but these, those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. I'm sorry, that's not James 2, that's still uh, Luke 19. Oof. So the judgment seat makes public the evidence of our salvation, whether it was true or not and it reveals the degrees of rewards doesn't gain our salvation but there are degrees of rewards based on what we do in the body as believers so as we examine our hearts you know we we want to just think what is my perspective on life what is my perspective on death do I really believe in the judgment seat of Christ? And does it alter? Does it give me pause? And, and is, is doctrine transforming my life? Is the truth that I say I believe in transforming my life? We have to think about our bodies and put them in scriptural perspective, but also think about the judgment seat of Christ. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. What a statement. Is that our perspective? Are we putting Christ first? Whether we're 
at one of the most joyous seasons of our lives, whether we are at one of the worst seasons of our lives, by God's grace, we make it our aim to please Him. So we want to leave here thinking about our bodies before Christ. We want to leave here thinking about our judgment before the seat of Christ. May God bless the preaching of His Word.